0: Um, so Hale and I actually met here at MIT long before I even got a PhD. Um, we were here uh, attending and taking part in a conference called Race in Digital Space, that I believe may have been organized by Henry Jenkins and kind of the the first crew of CMS, um, first group of CMS people. Um, and uh, so it was. It's kind of it's nice to sort of re- be totally able to reunite uh, now that I am a actual faculty member here. Um, so uh, Sohail Dolatzai is the founding is the founder of Razor Step, an LA-based media lab. His work includes scholarship essay and uh, short film, video, and installation work, and the curatorial. He is the author and co-editor of several books, including. 50 Years of the Battle of Algiers, uh, passed as prologue, which we will be drawing upon today. Um, Black Star, Crescent Moon, The Muslim International and Black Freedom Beyond America. Um, And uh, uh, With Stones in Our Hands, Writings on Muslims' Racism and Empire, and Return of the Mecca, The Art of Islam and Hip Hop. And of course, Born to Use Mics. reading Naza's Ilmatic. Um, he is the curator of the celebrated exhibit Return of the Mecca, The Art of Islam and Hip Hop, and History's Absolved Revolutionary Cuban Poster Art and the Muslim International. His video and installation work includes short film essay pieces with Yasin Bey, a cine geography with Zach de la Rocha, as well as an installation piece entitled "Kasbah." Um, a place of confinement for the natives, yet reclaimed. He wrote liner notes for the Sony Legacy Recordings release of the 20th 20th anniversary deluxe box set of Rage Against the Machine, self-titled debut album. And um, so Hale is someone who is real, who I look up to as as someone who's able to constantly navigate and move between spaces of um, popular media production, music, scholarship, um, and community-based activism. And it's a real pleasure to have him here today to talk about the Battle of Algiers.
1: Thank you, Salil. Thank you, Yvette. Appreciate (laughs) it. All right. Um, Is it working, Rachel, okay? All right, excellent. Um, So if I could just ask uh, real quick that there be no recording, sound, or video of this talk other than Rachel? We can all agree to that? And respect that I appreciate it Um, uh, thank you Vivek you know for the uh, the amazing intro Um, I even forgot about that race in digital space conference um, where we first met um, being here at MIT Um, so yeah it's interesting how the worlds come together in that way Um, so I want to thank Vivek of course um, and the folks here at MIT in the comparative media studies and writing um, department as well as the Global Studies um, and Language French Program um, and all of you for coming um, to this talk. Um, it's, uh, it comes out of um, a book that I published now almost two years ago um, for the 50th anniversary of um, the Battle of Algiers and maybe I should stop by asking how many of you all have seen the film? Okay, so almost everybody has, that's good. Okay, and so just a show of hands of who hasn't, just so I know who I'm kind of, okay? So I'll try and kind of preface any of the clips I show with a little bit of backdrop, and I'll give it a little bit of you know, in, in description um, you know, in my opening remarks. So it's gonna, it's gonna kind of emanate from um, the book I wrote, um, as well as then what I'm trying to think through and theorize around this idea of a ghost archive. Uh, I've been kind of, um, thinking about the work that I've done and thinking about where I want to go uh, with new work and the idea of ghostliness and haunting and in particular its relationship to broadly defined an archive is something that's been kind of, I guess I've been contending with in unconsciously in some ways, um, but now I feel like because of the kind of place I'm at with my work and some really amazing, incredible theorizing that has been going on Um, and some of the kind of incredible artistic cultural production and film work that has been going on around memory and the archive, particularly around um, um, radical politics and radical cultural production I think has really kind of put wind in my sails for me to kind of, if I were to rewrite this book in some way and the kind of framing that I would have um, for the book I think is going to be part of what I'm presenting to you all today. So um, I'm going to be doing a combination of reading, talking um, and showing some clips and/or images as well, so bear with me in this kind of um, journey that we're about to take. Um, the Battle of Algiers is still being waged, only now on a planetary scale. Everywhere the unrest is permanent, and everywhere the war declared on it is perpetual. Though the Battle of Algiers was made over 50 years ago, it's as if it never ended. From the corridors of power to the tunnels of Gaza, we are seemingly still living the film. Only now it's being billed as the War on Terror, a sequel to another prequel that is part horror, part absurdist drama, and part dystopic sci-fi, where mosques have become morgues and killing fields turned to theme parks. The names of the droned, tortured and maimed can't even be mentioned and if they are they're mispronounced amid the carnage some wield the dialectic and others the gun while the hunt for Ali LaPoint continues prior to the invasion of Iraq in 2003 the largest anti-war protest in history took place throughout the world but to no avail President Bush dismissed the protesters as a focus group quote-unquote unleashing the bombing campaign that was known as shock and awe. Soon after the invasion in late 2003, the Pentagon invited the military brass to a screening of the Battle of Algiers. And the teaser said, and this is a quote from a press release the Pentagon themselves put out, quote, how to win the battle against terrorism and lose the war of ideas. Children shoot soldiers at point blank range. Women plant bombs in cafes. Soon the entire Arab population builds to a mad fervor. Sound familiar? The French have a plan. It succeeds tactically, but it fails strategically. To understand why, come to a rare showing of this film." End quote. And then it's the Battle of Algiers, right, that they're showing for the Pentagon generals. Re-released by Criterion DVD collection shortly after the Pentagon screening including a theatrical run as well, The Battle of Algiers is widely considered the greatest political film of all time, having won numerous prestigious international awards, including being nominated for three Oscars. It is mentioned by filmmakers as diverse as Mira Nair, Paul Greengrass, Spike Lee, Steven Soderbergh, Oliver Stone, and Julian Schnabel, among others, as being deeply influential on their own work. But the resurgence of the film in the post 9-11 context has been both troubling and telling. In addition to the Pentagon screening, the film was mentioned in a congressional hearing titled Preparing for the War on Terrorism just 9 days after 9/11. In speaking about al-Qaeda, Christopher Harmon, a professor at the US Marine Corps Command, Mar- Marine Corps Command and Staff College would claim, quote, "They use a cell structure that has been that has never been better explained publicly than in the famous film The Battle of Algiers, in which a clandestine organization can form and operate" and, while never impenetrable, reduce some of its counterintelligence problems." End quote. Also, Richard Clark, the doyen of the National Security Establishment, who worked in Presidents Reagan, George H. W. Bush, Clinton, and George W. Bush in various high-level capacities, including as Chief Advisor on the National Security Council from 1998 to 2003, would come to prominence as the quote-unquote critical voice in the political class after leaving the George, H- the George W. Bush inner circle. In expressing his disagreement with the approach to counterterrorism under the Bush-Cheney junta, Clark argued that the attacks in the Battle of Algiers, quote, may have been the 1950s, but it's all happening now in the 21st century, end quote. In presenting a world violently defined by colonialism, only to then shatter that world's seeming invincibility with a defiance that was at once shocking and gut-wrenching, the Battle of Algiers gave voice and dignity to Algerian resistance and French and ...resistance to French colonial occupation. What interest would the Pentagon have in the film? Sorry, I shouldn't have put that back. Sorry. What interest would the... What interest would the Pentagon have in the film? How could a film that was so sympathetic to the Algerians, evocatively and poetically showing them organizing, targeting French occupation forces and planting bombs in cafes and other public places, come to the service of the most powerful empire in the history of the world 50 years after it was released? And why did the Algerian war have such an impact on post 9-11 U.S. military policy? So much so that the Petraeus Doctrine, the blueprint for U.S. counterinsurgency in Iraq, Afghanistan, and elsewhere, was deeply indebted to French military specialist David Galula's book, quote, his book, uh, Pacification of Algeria and Counterinsurgency Warfare. The Battle of Algiers is an itinerant film, a nomadic text that has migrated throughout the world and has, as Edward Sa- echoing Edward Said's traveling theory, been embraced by a diverse group of revolutionaries, rebel groups, and leftists, as well as revanchist right-wing dictators, military juntas, and imperial war machines. The film has always been a battleground for competing ideas about power and politics at different historical junctures and in varying places around the world. In fact, part of the film's impact comes from the diverse sympathies it has engendered and the sheer range of interests that have identified with the film from across the political spectrum, whether it be in the favelas of Brazil or on the front lines of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the Tamil Tigers, the Irish Republican Army, or Black Power from the war rooms of the Pentagon to the courtrooms of the Panther 21 trial, from the factory floors in Iran to the palaces where dirty wars were planned, and from community centers in Los Angeles to art house theaters in Havana, Mexico City, and Montevideo. But 50 years on, tracing the roots and roots of the Battle of Algiers gives us a panoramic view of the massive global upheavals of the last half century, where formal European colonies crumbled, The United States rose to Leviathan status, and imperial control reconstituted itself in the face of third world liberation struggles and black freedom movements. What I have done in this book is situate the roots of this film within the era of decolonization, revolutionary struggle, and the emergence of what has been called third cinema. But in also mapping the roots the film traveled. I try to tell the enduring story of how a larger tapestry of resistance to the legacies of slavery and colonialism took shape throughout the world in different historical contexts, while also revealing how the networks of repression tried to silence and crush those movements to maintain their violent rule. As the racialized threat of the Muslim looms, defining Western statecraft, and haunting the tattered edges of modernity, the Battle of Algiers can serve as a diagnostic a parable, or even an allegory of the moment. By exploring the film and its afterlives, as well as the debates it engaged around revolutionary violence, gender, and the role of women, torture, and the post-independence moment, what I'm trying to do is restage the Battle of Algiers for our current time, and to think not only about the contemporary forms of coloniality, dispossession, and racial capitalism under the war on terror, but how, also how the legacies of decolonization and black radical struggle are imagined. So I'm interested in this ghost archive of the film, its traces and afterlives, and the acts of world making that the film and its circulation has continued to produce. The film is enmeshed within a multiplicity of assemblages and entanglements, a deep history and legacy of struggle and repression. And so, in imagining the film as a ghost archive, I'm interested in the kinds of practice it has inaugurated and the influence it has had on shaping ideas about tactics, aesthetics, strategies, and the possibility of insurgent protest. (coughs) Put another way, what does that set of histories, relationships, connections, unfolding and unfinished solidarities conjure for us today? What does that imaginary do for us now in places that Avery Gordon has called the utopian margins? Where, quote, fugitive moments of comprehension are illegible, invisible, and even resistant to the idea of the archive itself. To think of the film as opposed to the Algerian War itself or um, the, for independence or the, the French colonial archive, but to think of the film as an archive poses certain questions and concerns, if not limitations. Clearly, the film is not an archive in the conventional sense. It's not tied to an institutional locale, academic or otherwise, though it has tried to be. Nor is it housed in a magisterial place, such as a museum, so that there is not a material or physical collection. It is not supported by endowment, a foundation, or patronage. Nor does it, or can it, as Derrida says, encompass all of the Algerian war or the history of decolonization. Maybe more pointedly, what I'm asking is, how is the film a ghost archive for thinking through the social life of the war on terror? Paraphrasing scholar Vincent Brown, how does the film, as ghost archive, provide the tools to explore not just the past, but also a vision for understanding our sense of history and even futurity? While I can recount the nomadic nature of the film, and I'll do that a little bit later, places where it was screened and shown. while I could recount those, the factness, right, of its screenings, that they happened, I'm really also interested in how does the film's presence and prescience in the post 9-11 context and its embrace by the Pentagon, gesture toward a ghostliness to the film's influence that the national security state seeks to exercise, right? So essentially what I'm trying to get at is in, in the current context um, there's a kind of legacy of, of traces Um, and hauntings that I'm suggesting that I'll hopefully show you in the kind of contemporary moment that they get manifest, that the film has kind of been um, taken up in different ways by artists, by scholars, um, et cetera, right? And so I'm interested in thinking about how under the language of the war on terror, the logic of the war on terror, the film has come to take on a particularly different kind of role, and particularly the way in which states, right? And argue, as I've already kind of commented on the most powerful state in the world, right? Has sought to, in some ways, recuperate or appropriate the kind of impulse and thrust of the film, right, which was one of anti colonial liberatory possibility, and make it a film about how to do counterinsurgency, right? And while that's not new, because as I'll talk about, right, the film was used specifically by the CIA through Operation Condor in the training of Latin American military juntas, particularly in South America, right? The film was used as a training manual. So it's always had this history of being used as a form of counterinsurgency. But what I'm also suggesting is something in the current moment has somewhat shifted, right? So that while in the past, right, when we there was a kind of broader global left movement. The the language and legacy of decolonization and those struggles were vibrant, vital, and real things that were happening, right? There was a broad global left. You had a range of constituencies all over the world, some of whom I mentioned. PLO, IRA, Tamil Tigers, uh, Black Panthers, a whole host of folks who saw the film as as a source of inspiration, right? So that the film, became generalizable. right? It was abstracted away from its context of it being about Algerians fighting the French and it became something more universal in its appeal. And what I'm suggesting that in the post 9-11 context that process has been inverted. That without a vibrant kind of global left, without a kind of Interconnected series of anti-colonial or decolonial movements that we can say and point to in a kind of tangible way, um, in the language of the war on terror, right? The film has been specifically about Muslims with bombs, right? So it has a, it has a, has a kind of particularity, right? It's not abstract; it's not generalizable, right? So that as the United States has talked about after 9/11, right, the America saw itself as the French. And so it identified with Colonel Matthew in the film. Right? And in that act of identification, in the way in which the film has been trafficking, in terms of the, the, the racial logic of the war on terror, what I'm, what I'm suggesting, right, is that in doing so, the United States has sought to, in some ways, sanitize the colonial past. right? Because if what happened to us on 9-11, the logic would go, was these folks bombed us and terrorized us, Look what they were doing to the French 50 years ago by planting bombs in cafes. And so there's a, there's a continuity being created between the current 21st century war on terror and the colonial project with the French in Algeria. So that if the US was a victim after 9-11, so too were the French back in the 1950s. And so the colonial project gets sanitized. It gets whitewashed. And the, imperial, the current imperial moment of the war on terror, the invasions of Afghanistan, Iraq, the passage of the Patriot Act, the, the, the national security state that has emerged gets kind of cleansed of its kind of overreach and is instead of seen as something just and necessary in this new moment of battle, right? So I'm trying to kind of position and see how the film traffics between these two moments and what kind of a rewriting of the past is attempting to be done. I'm not suggesting that it's locked, sealed, and delivered, so to speak. that is at least attempting to be done in terms of like recuperating the politics Of what is arguably the most kind of, you know, as I, you know, the greatest political film of all time. What does that act of recuperation mean, and how have others tried to push back and resist against it? Okay, is that is that somewhat clear so far? Okay. So what I want to do before I get into stuff, it's five thirty, so we're going to stop around five fifty-ish. I got another twenty minutes. Okay. Okay. Um, What I want to do, I I started, and I'll come back to this image in a second. Is just kind of take you through a little bit you know and and this is where I'll kind of go a little bit more off the cuff cuff, kind of you know Algiers as a space right there's been more recent work um, on Algiers was seen as um, in many ways the mecca of revolution for those of you who don't know Um, in terms of the ways in which um, contemporary politics are being mobilized Bill Mullen who's a kind of scholar has written that, that, that Palestine today is the new dialectic. That is to say, it's the space through which activists around the world are seeking to understand their condition through the, what's happening in Palestine. And, and then connecting, therefore, to what's happening in Palestine. And Mullen argues that Palestine is the new di- dialectic. But in the high point of anti-colonialism and decolonization, in the 60s and 70s, that space was Algiers, right? So a new book has just come out called Algiers, Third World Capital, and Emile Cabral, who was like a revolutionary theorist, a theorist out of Guinea-Bissau, called Algiers the, revolution, the Mecca of Revolution, right? Um, and so Algiers had this kind of sacred place because of the War of Independence, the work of Frantz Fanon, and even also after the film comes out, it takes on even greater kind of greater attention is, is, is brought to the, the city of Algiers. So, Algiers kind of traffics as a city, um, in, as an archive itself, in terms of these longings. And I'll point to an artist that kind of like tries to explore some of this work. So, I'm just gonna slowly go through just some photos, some not so high quality, but some better than others, but trying to give you like a small sense of this. So, this is an image of, these two images um, are of Nelson Mandela. Uh, prior to being uh, imprisoned by the apartheid state um, training in um, FLN guerrilla camps in Algeria. Um, and his famous quote in its kind of gendered ways is, Algeria made me a man, right? Um, and when, when that Mandela was put in prison because of his advocacy of armed struggle against the apartheid state, and it was through the FLN training camps that he got this training, right? And this is just one of many examples, right? Um, this is an image of Emil Cabral. Um, at the um, 1969 Pan-African Festival in Algiers. It was the first ever Pan-African Festival being held that united the continent that had been going through kind of a series of anti-colonial wars. And Cabral, and I'll show you some other images, it was a culture and arts festival, but Cabral comes to the conference. William Klein did an amazing documentary on the Pan-African Festival. uh, cultural uh, festival in 1969, and this is a screen grab of Cabral in that. Um, this is um, a flyer for um, the Spirit House, which is um, run by was run by Amiri Baraka. This was in New Jersey, in Newark, New Jersey, um, around the time when the Black Arts Movement, right after the assassination of Malcolm X, where Black activists and artists were using the arts as a vehicle for raising revolutionary consciousness. And here's a flyer at the Spirit House where um, uh, they end up screening the Battle of Algiers. Right, They're showing The Dutchman, which was one of Baraka's own plays turned into a film, and they're screening the Battle of Algiers here. So I also talk about in the book the ways in which Algiers for black activists and black radicals here in the States became a flashpoint. Right? Hoyt Fuller, um, Baraka. Malcolm goes to Algeria. James Baldwin goes to Algiers. Um, Many of the expats who were escaping American racism who flee to Paris um, are there now looking at the ways in which the French are treating the Algerian migrants there, right? And writing about it, particularly Baldwin, right? Writes openly about, you know, the treatment of Algerians by the French, right? And then the solidarity that then black people have with these Algerians who are both trying to seek their freedom. And so Baldwin writes, very poetically about that history. And so this is just one example of that kind of uh, connection. Um, this is of course Che Guevara with Ben Bella, Ahmed Ben Bella, the first president of Algiers. Uh, when Che goes to uh, a conference in, Par- in Algiers in 1965 uh, to speak um, on Afro-Asian unity um, and Malcolm X was supposed to be at the same conference speaking with Che but was assassinated 12 days before this conference had taken place in Algiers. Um, here is an image of um, the official Black Panther Party newspaper called the Black Panther um, and uh, it was like you know uh, uh, outside of what at the time was Muhammad Speaks, the, the Nation of Islam newspaper in the 1960s and the 70s the Black Panther paper was these were the two major organs of kind of uh, the black press in terms of like a critical radical internationalist politics. And on the cover here, you see the kind of, um, the, you see an image of, which I'll get to some other ones, of the Black Panthers and Algiers. Um, the first international office of the Black Panther Party was opened in Algiers, right? Um, so, and, and it, it emerges because of Kathleen Cleaver and Eldridge Cleaver who were in exile and left Cuba, and, they ended up appearing in Algiers at the time of that 1969 Pan-African Cultural Festival. So this is an image of, 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 of that. Here's an image of Cleaver, other Panthers, with a delegation from the PLO. So Algeria, Algiers became a hub for revolutionaries all over the world, exiles who were in danger. The PLO was in exile in Algiers for a moment. Um, and so they, that, this is that delegation, but you had the MPLA from Mozambique, you had liberation struggle from Guinea-Bissau, from Brazil. All over the world, you, Algiers became a home that attracted these revolutionary movements, and so here's just a photo of that kind of gathering. The, the uh, Panthers had opened up what was called the Afro-American Center at the time, and people would come through, and, and I'll show you some other stuff with Bushra Khalili's work, but where they put on display kind of news and information about what was going on in the United States, right? Um, and Algiers, I think Kathleen Cleaver called it like the, the, the Black Panther embassy. It was the first embassy that we had established, right? They, they, put, they used that term. This is a flyer for uh, the William Klein. He did a film on, like I mentioned, uh, the Pan-African Festival, but he also did a follow-up uh, with that where he records Eldridge Cleaver um, in, um, in Algiers, It's a whole documentary. It's on YouTube if you wanted to see it. Um, I appreciate my friend. I, I think you came in late if you don't oh, take photos. That's okay. No, no, no. Thank you though. Um, not, not that that can't be found, but yeah. Thank you. Thank you. This is another. So this is Stokely Carmichael. Um, Stokely Carmichael comes up with his wife at the time, Mira Makiba. She was exiled from South Africa, the singer for her anti-colonial, sorry, her anti-apartheid uh, music. And so they come to Algiers as well to meet with Cleaver um, at the time. This is Nina Simone performing in Algiers as part of that Pan-African Cultural Fest, as well as Archie Shep, jazz musicians, he did a whole album from his live show there um, and he's performing as well. Um, and so, so I, I, said, I, I say all that to say that Algiers becomes this kind of space for thinking about a legacy of anti-colonial thinking and kind of black power politics in the United States, right, and those kind of convergences. And I can go into a lot more detail in the Q&A if you all want, I just tried to do it in in about five minutes. Um, But this is part of how and why the film had the broad appeal that it had, right, because of the central place that Algiers held within a kind of rising or third world consciousness. And so when the film drops in 66, it really starts to kind of like spread quickly, right? Um, and I'll talk a little bit about the places and where, in which it did that. This is a photo from 2015. It's, it's almost sad to say I don't know. You, 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 I tend to forget the dates of how many times Israel continues to bomb Palestine. So this is sometime in the last few years. And here's a Pal- this is a Palestinian protester, if you will, and there was a whole host of Pal- Algerian flags that were being waved at the time. The World Cup had just ended in 2014, and the Algerian national team had kind of surprised a lot of folks with how well they did, and I think got to the quarterfinals, and it- they donated all their winnings to the people of Palestine. And so Algeria, fla- Algerian flags, for that reason, but also the historical legacy of the way in which Algiers treated the PLO started to prop up, and this was kind of like, I felt like a really uh, kind of, iconic image that kind of brought you know, to the current moment, some of the ways in which this gets played. And
2: that's the Algerian national flag, is
1: that? Yeah, right. Um, so, so, so that's one example. And, and you know, I, um, I want to maybe spend a little bit of time before I go into some of the contemporary stuff. Kind of maybe. Um, do you have a passcode down here, Arthur? That's all right. Yeah. All right. All right. Um, I want to maybe spend a little bit of time kind of like thinking, like talking about kind of the different ways in which the film was used, right? And where it was watched and screened as we move into kind of like some of the more contemporary conversations about the film. Um, so I'll, I'll do a little bit of like reading and discussing. Um, so give me one second as I find this section in the book. Um, Okay. I guess it hasn't loaded. Oh, here we go. Um, so as I mentioned to you before, the, the 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 film screens in a broad range of places and is appropriated early on um, by a whole host of constituencies. Um, you know, primarily the French model of counterinsurgency becomes a kind of global model that the CIA and the U.S. pick up on even to this moment, but at that time in the late 60s. For those of you who don't know, the OAS was, the, 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 the French were split on the question of Algeria. Just to put it in a nutshell, and I'm doing this really crudely, so forgive me for the real historians in the room who are going to feel uncomfortable with my thumbnail description of it. But the OAS is wanting to maintain French control of Algeria, even though de Gaulle has decided that's not going to happen. We're going to pull out. Um, so there's a split in the French military, and the OAS becomes a, essentially a paramilitary arm, or, or wing, that wants to try to maintain control and is, is, is doing things to undermine what the French are doing. The French government, de Gaulle. In fact, they had an assassination attempt on de Gaulle, right? The, the OAS did. and the OAS? The organization of, what does it stand for? Uh, uh, our armed security, I, I'll find it in my notes right there, right? Oh, French OAS um, organization. It's a local thing in Algeria. It's the French military OAS. But it, it's, it emerges out of Algeria and then they spread out through other parts of the French Empire, right? in other colonies, right? Because they were interested in the French colonial project, right? So after decolonization, after the war ends, um, OAS members are wanted by the French military by the French government, they're wanted it for treason. And so they spread, and they split, and they go to Washington, D.C., CIA brings many of them in, and many of them also flee to South America. And this becomes a kind of relationship that the U.S. establishes through Operation Condor and the propping up of right-wing juntas in and military dictatorships in South America. And so all this training is going on now between the French counterinsurgency school, the CIA, and counterinsurgency uh, forces in South America, right? As like for example in Uruguay or Br- Uruguay the Tupamaros rebels were a Marxist group that were trying to emerge out of the landless poor and those rebellions were sought to be crushed and the Battle of Algiers was a central part of these training techniques as well as the counterinsurgency model. So they screened the film, they learned techniques from this model and they go and then impose them upon the population. But the film was also screened, for example, in places like Brazil and Uruguay for one week and even two weeks at a time and then mysteriously pulled from the theaters, right? And so I talk about the ways in which different critics and journalists wrote about the screening of the film, the impact it had, but then also at the same time, uh, what it meant for the film to be pulled away from the public and hidden from view, for lack of a better word, right? So the film has an amazing history in South America, but I also tracked the way in which it shows, for example, in Mexico the year before the, the 68 Olympics, the iconic kind of John Carlos and Tommy Smith where they protest, um, uh, their black power protest against kind of US racism. The film screens in Mexico for two weeks to completely sold out audiences. Over 200,000 people are estimated to have seen the film in a two week period in Mexico, in Mexico City. And the film was pulled out of the theaters, right? Um, Mysteriously, all of a sudden the film was pulled out. And you have a rising student protest movement in Mexico happening in mid to late 67 in the lead up to the Olympics that ends up in a massacre at Tlatelolco two weeks before the Olympics were to open right and that becomes in many ways those the scholars on mexico the kind of newest iteration of the dirty war in mexico where the mexican left goes into hiding as a result of the massacre in tlatelolco in 68 right um and so the battle of algiers was a really kind of like you know it it played a part i can say in kind of the the students there and and i kind of talk about some of the students who spoke about the importance of the film and connecting their struggles with what was happening in algiers Um, It also shows in Havana, Cuba at the time, of course, right, and Castro was a big fan of kind of the the role of film and kind of militant struggle and um, I talk about the awards it wins in Havana and the the, the constellation of journalists including like unfortunately Christopher Hitchens who used to be a leftist and then became a kind of post 9-11, you know, kind of advocate for uh, US-backed imperialism. But he's in Cuba at the time and he talks about kind of the, the, the value, the, the power of that film for him. Um, interesting kind of also somewhat anecdotal information, the Panther 21 trial, for those of you who don't know, was a trial of 21 Black Panthers in New York City who were uh, charged with attempting to incite rebellion and blow up buildings um, and it, by an informant, right? And one of the, one of the Panther 21 was um, Afini Shakur, those of you who don't know, uh, the mother of Tupac Shakur. Um, and uh, at the time of the trial, she's pregnant with Tupac. And she's sitting in a jail cell with Tupac, right? And so Tupac talks about being nurtured in the womb in prison, right? Uh, but the trial itself is taking place, and because of the, the, the way in which like, you know, the Panthers saw the Battle of Algiers as required viewing for the party members, um, the film was used and shown in the courtroom by the prosecution Right, so I talk about this, right? and it was shown as a way to kind of further proof, look at these Black Panthers, right? look at what they're trying to, these Black people are trying to blow up things in New York City, et cetera, et cetera. And the prosecution used the film to try and, as evidence, this is what they're required to watch, put two and two together, convict them. And of course the trial happens and all charges are dropped, the jury finds the Panthers not guilty, you know, and they're freed. And in the interviews afterwards with the jury, the jury, some of the jury members are saying the most kind of influential thing for them was the Battle of Algiers, that when the prosecution showed us the film, it actually gave us more sympathy for the Panthers' cause, right? And so it backfires on the prosecution. So even in the courtroom, the film is used as this kind of like attempt to prosecute the Panthers, right? Um, and so I talk about that as well in the book, um, and you know. Um, more more contemporarily in the 1990s in Los Angeles with um, a Chicano activist organization, arts organization called the uh, Generación, which was na- regeneration, which was named after uh, Ricardo Flores Magón, who was a Mexican anarchist uh, in the turn of the ni- turn of the 20th century, and came to Los Angeles and started this journal called Regeneration. Um, they opened up a center in 1990s that was about kind of connecting Chicano politics with the burgeoning Zapatista struggle in southern Mexico. This is before 1994. Of course, when the Zapatistas emerge um, in 1994, um, the, the, the center gets more attention and one of the co-founders was Jacques de la Rocha of Rage Against the Machine. Um, who was a was was a, who played a seminal role in kind of the establishment and the funding of the center, and it became a space where they were showing films, where they show. So I interview Zach in the book, and and I and he talks about th- the film was a way that they could connect their struggle to a kind of larger third world kind of liberation struggle. Um, so they showed they screened films like The Battle of Algiers, The Spook Who Sat by the Door, a uh, whole host of performance artists like Gerardo Gomez Pena paid there. Um, There were readings, there were, you know, bands played like the Watts Prophets, Rage Against the Machine played there as well. So this cultural center became kind of like a hub and the Battle of Algiers kind of had um, a significant role to play for them in terms of like their film culture they were trying to establish. Um, I then of course talk about, as we edge into like the the, the, the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s, the way in which the film was screened by uh, the State of Israel. Right, it, it had originally been banned by the state of Israel, the film, when it first came out. And in fact, then when it was no longer banned, then the Algerians did not want to show it in Israel as part of a protest. Right, um, But after the first intifada, um, they decide and agree to screen the film in um, Tel Aviv um, in 1987-88. And the film sells out and there's all this interest in what's happening and trying to connect the first Palestinian intifada with what they're seeing on screen with um, the with the Algerians and the FLN, um, and so I talk about that history as well as then almost 10 years later, uh, or 12 years later, when the massacre of Janine happens in the Gaza ref- in, in Gaza refugee camp, um, that the film was used by the Israeli military as a way to kind of construct a, a form of attack against uh, the refugee camp in, in Gaza. So the film has this kind of really interesting doubleness to it, and so, Um, I think I'm, as I'm trying to walk you through some of these moments, um, trying to think about like the ways in which the afterlife of the film continues to play. So I want to move somewhat quickly because, um, so here is um, the last Rage Against the Machine album from 1999 and they named the album The Battle of Los Angeles after the Battle of Algiers and everywhere that they toured, and I talk about this in the book, everywhere they toured, every city became The Battle of and then that city. So there was like the Battle of New York, the Battle of London, the Battle of Paris, the Battle of Boston, right? So this became a kind of um, metaphor for the tour. And this photo was a photo that they took um, that, if you know from the film, right, of the four fighters in the box, right? And so they bottled, they wanted to kind of seek to mimic this idea because as, I, as Zach talks about in the interview I did with him, they saw themselves as kind of like a, a musical insurgency against kind of the culture, right? And so they were kind of trying to use that iconography from the film um, as part of the band's kind of um, you know, um, politics. Um, so um, I have a little bit of time here. I mean, I could potentially show um, some clips from the film. Um, but I think most people have seen it, so I want to maybe talk through some stuff in a little bit. Um, wh- one thing I want to do maybe is th- a, c- a more contemporary artist, and she's maybe my favorite contemporary artist. If you, How many people know Bushra's work, Bushra Khalili? She has a show up at the Fine Arts Museum here in Boston right now, so I would encourage you. It's called Poets and Witnesses. She's really interested in the era of decolonization. She's Moroccan, but she's interested in kind of the ways in which these ideas continue to Unfold in the current moment, so I'm going to be seeing her exhibit tomorrow. As a matter of fact, my last day here in Boston, um, "Foreign Office" is a, a piece that she did, and I'm going to I'm going to just show you if I can click out of it. I think it'll let me go to it. Right. So "Foreign Office," you know, is a is a work of hers, and I can just kind of like scroll up. Um, you know so this is a more contemporary iteration of this kind of afterlife this ghostliness that i'm talking about right um she says focus o- foreign office focuses on the period which algiers between 62 and 72 became the mecca of revolutionaries hosting representations of many liberation movements from africa asia and the americas right um taking as a starting point this forgotten past <coughs> the post-independence era and internationalism foreign office invites us to reflect on history and its transmission on emancipation as essentially linked to poetry so it's an art installation that she does and I can just kind of you know uh, kind of scroll through where she kind of uh, it's a short film Uh, there's Fanon there's Malcolm there's Huey there's that same photo that I used of, of Mandela right and these are the two characters in her film that she creates and she goes and snaps photos of kind of the places where gatherings were being had in Algiers during that kind of revolutionary period. So this is the residence of the Black Panther Party delegation. Um, uh, this is um, another hotel in Algiers as well. The headquarters of the Guinea-Bissau African Liberation Movement, right? Um, the MPLA delegation in the city center, their headquarters. Um, the Portuguese National Liberation Front. Um, this is uh, the, uh, del- the headquarters of the Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine, right? So she's trafficking kind of these spaces, right? And kind of trying to think through what those mean um, in the current conjuncture, right? In terms of thinking about this past. So I find her work to be really interesting. Um, there's, um, as well, um, uh, not coincidentally, maybe my favorite band today is a group called Algiers, um, and this is This is this is two years ago. They're like a punk group um, out of originally Atlanta, but now New York and London. Um, and I, I, they, they, they did the same thing with that kind of Battle of Algiers right um, iconography. And I'll, I'll play a short kind of song of theirs that you can kind of like listen to. We might end up having to deal with. Uh, to add at the beginning, unfortunately.
2: You have to understand one thing
1: right. about
2: directing that every project
1: what's that? you get with. Right. So, this is a song called Walk Like a Panther, right, which opens with. So, so I'll just play you a little clip. So that's Algiers, kind of a band that you know has, has been around for the last maybe four or five years. Um, and again, if you listen to their music, it's a, it's a variety of different styles. They named the group Algiers because it was a, a kind of a gathering place of different styles and different constituencies to kind of come back. So they're trading on that legacy, right? I'm working with them. I'm gonna be going to Algiers with them um, and shooting a film um, on their new album that's gonna be done. They're gonna be doing some performances down there. So that's just kind of like an interesting connection in terms of like how some of these artists in the contemporary moment are taking on this kind of legacy and the kind of memory. Um, And then um, finally, um, if I could uh, play you a, if I can find it, I thought I had it up here already, sorry. Oh, here it is right here. So here is um, a video I worked on um, that I've been working with, kind of, Casbah Films and the family um, with the footage. And it's a video that I cut together with um, Zack de la Rocha for um, the first single on the new album that's going to be coming out. So Rachel, if you can like. To have a kind of fugitivity today right and what does it mean for culture to kind of take on a particular kind of archive a cinematic archive if you will right and in many ways you know do however small we can do to move the needle away from or to recenter the film as this insurgent text and not the way in which the Pentagon is trying to position it as one of like uh, kind of war on terror, kind of manifesto that's about counterinsurgency and how to kind of eliminate uh, kind of people's longing for for freedom. So, um, so I can show some other clips and stuff from the film, but I think I'll stop there maybe and talk through some other uh, ideas that I wanted to get across maybe in the Q and A if you guys uh, will afford that. But uh, yeah, I want to thank you all for listening. So, appreciate it. <laughs> So, any questions?
3: Uh, hi. Uh, I really, really enjoyed your talk. Uh, my name is Puya. I teach Middle East history here. Um, this week, actually, uh, my class is supposed to be watching this. Mm-hmm. It's a film I've screened since I was a student teacher at an undergrad at Berkeley all the way up to the present, so about like 15 years now. And and you brought up a point, and I, and I want to see if it, you think it applies to the situation I have with my students. In the early 2000s, when I showed it, post 9-11, I had students of Jewish heritage who would come up to me afterwards, and they would say that now I kind of understand kind of what the Palestinians go I, I, I'm a bit more sympathetic towards the Palestinians than I was before I saw this film. That was maybe 2002 and three. Now, when I screen it after you know 16 years of the war on terror and all these visuals that were bombarded with like American sniper and these films. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm getting a very different reaction from students. Mm-hmm. Um, and one is that um, they, they, they're a little bit more sympathetic towards Colonel Matthew. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm wondering if that's because of what you said, in, in this post 9 11 global war on terror era, and, and how the film hasn't changed, but the society has changed, and now they're looking at it with this conditioning in mind. Do you think that applies to this? you know growing sentiment that I get from my students in my classes
1: today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean I've had the same exact experience, you know, um, like showing the film, you know, I started teaching at the university in in 2003, so that I would I would show it even as an under, when I was in grad school before 9/11. Uh, but especially after 9/11, I would have students who um, would normally be sympathetic to what's being shown on screen. So um, if I dare say, they were SJP students, Students for Justice in Palestine, Muslim Student Union folks, who were doing a lot of you know, anti-Zionist actions on campus. In fact, if you know anything about UC Irvine, UCI is known as UC Intifada, it's, we, we, we have a history. Um, but even those students um, would watch the film and they would be like this, the, you know, the, the, the bombs in the cafe, or, you know, um, uh, they, they, they were uncomfortable, right, with what they were seeing. And I think it's, it speaks to exactly what you're saying and what I was getting at in the book, right, which is that I think, like, and something I spoke about earlier, that there's a way in which the film, because of the, the, a couple things, but there isn't a global left, there isn't a kind of widespread global anti-colonial struggle to kind of tap into, right, that this film could be generalized from, and as a result of that, this film has become narrowed and particularized so that this film becomes a film about Muslims with guns, Muslims planting bombs in cafes, right? And so it's been narrowed in a particular way, right? And so what the war on terror has done more broadly is taken the question of armed struggle off the table, particularly for anti-imperial or anti-colonial forces, right? It has said... Under the rubric of counter terrorism or anti terrorism, which is a very racist architecture, right? As I argue in the book, too, the terrorist label is the 21st century way of saying savage, right? And it marks particular bodies, regions, ideas outside of the community of the human. And in fact, in order to save the community of the human, states now have a responsibility to eliminate the threat to the human community. And so they're authorized to kill. And you see this in all kinds of official directives where the United States has license to drone and kill and assassinate anybody deemed terrorists, right? So terrorism has become a kind of ruling paradigm, or anti-terrorism has become a ruling paradigm for taking the question of one armed struggle off the table. But as I argue in the book, it's even taken the issue of Muslim resistance off the table. The idea that Muslims resisting is not just a threat to the right. It's not just a threat to the, main, the, the, the democratic liberal consensus. I would dare say that even the idea of Muslims resisting is a problem that even the left has with that idea, particularly the Marxist left, have a deep problem with the idea of Muslims and guns, and what that means, right? And so I think as a result of that kind of ideological ground being constructed, the film then, when it's operating within this climate, even for students as you and me have, that may be sympathetic, are all of a sudden a little hesitant, like, well, you know, can we really talk about, can we, can we really, is that really the way, right, is vi- right? And, and, and what it does for me is it opens up a larger conversation of what exactly is violence, right? We tend to think of violence in the spectacular way. It's the bombing, it's the explosion, it's the shooting. We narrow our understanding of what violence is. And in so doing, we also normalize what state violence is. We don't see it as violence. We see it as the normal functioning of what a state has to do. Oh, it goes to war. Oh, the police just do what they do. Or we don't even understand that poverty is violence. Right? We don't understand violence except in very spectacular ways. So, when we don't have that more kind of sophisticated or nuanced understanding of the multiple ways in which violence works and operates, right? And we only see spectacular violence as the kind of violence we have to stay away from, right? And then it's racially coded by these others. They hate our freedoms. Islam hates us. All this other kind of, you know, race thinking that gets put into place, right? you can then begin to see why people would be like, hey, you know, political violence, bombings, we can't be part of that, right? And it ultimately ends up authorizing and deepening like war powers, right, or authorizations to kill on the part of the United States, Britain, and their allies, right? So that's kind of a long-winded question, a long answer to your question, but I have had a very similar experience. Like, people are uncomfortable, but I think there's an ideological grounds there that's been kind of cultivated that produces that kind of an orientation, you know? So, any other questions, comments, thoughts? Yeah,
0: Just to, uh, just because this is directly following on that, um, uh, one thing I noticed about the way, and I'm asking this as, as much as a filmmaker or editor right. as, as anything else, right. but um, I noticed in the, the video that you just showed us, right. Thinking about how many bombings and shootings there are in the original film. Right. It felt like um, you were very intentional about mm-hmm. minimally like, you know, there's there's a moment where you cut right before a bomb right. goes off. Right? right. There's when there are I think there's only two places where where guns right. are, uh, you know, when, right. where guns are used, and you cut like as soon as right. mm-hmm. like, as soon as the trigger is pulled. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to ask about whether what you just described, in terms of your um, kind of intellectual, scholarly analysis or understanding of the film, then was translated into the choices that you were making as
1: an editor. Yeah, it's a great question, and not only Vivek in this room, but it's not surprising that you came up with that kind of... You're absolutely right. We cut at those moments. Mm -hmm. Those were serious debates me and Zach had about what's possible to show now. Like, part of the rollout of the video is going to be this conversation. This is where we felt like we have to have a conversation about the choices that were made in terms of what we showed and didn't show and why we didn't show what we could have shown, right? Um, In terms of what the kind of violence... You know, we, get, we think of as violence. So it, w- it was absolutely part of the conversation. We felt that like the suggestion of violence was in some ways more powerful than the spectacle itself. Right? And so we felt that if we could leave it there and there's a way in which at least, you know, you know we, I think we both feel that while the film ends on a kind of more triumphalist note, we wanted to create a kind of more dystopic vision in the video. The video kind of flips the film in a way it redoes the film and so that the riot scene at the end that you see in the film which in some ways is the moment where the algerians become free we've tried to reconstitute or remix it or reconstruct it as a kind of confrontation and not something necessarily triumphalist so we were we were very careful about what we could show right or what we wanted to show right in terms of what it would suggest because this question of, of, you know, and I think this is something that the film, many people have written about this film's appeal, its broad appeal, it's embraced by even the film establishment as it's a sober, objective, neutral account of war. Right? Because Colonel Matthew, for those of you who know, in the film, Matthew is not like the bad guy. Right, he doesn't. Every time he walks in the room, you don't hear like the ominous music, dun dun dun. Right, like he's just—he's a functionary. He's a bureaucrat, right? And and it's part of what I talk about in the book too—that that in 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 positioning Matthew like that, right? It suggests it's, it's it's kind of Hannah Arendt's argument about the banality of evil, right? Like, you know, the, the Nazis were bad people, but. We have to understand the context that produced Goebbels to do what he did, right? It's not about Goebbels, it's about Nazism as, a, as, as something that needs to be targeted, right? And so we have to understand not this as an individual, but as a system. So that Matthew, right, is not an, indi- an individual who's good or bad. He's part of a system and he even says this in that, if you remember that famous scene in the press conference where the, they're, they're, they're grilling him in some ways about torture. And he finally says, look, let's be real here. One, which echoes George Bush, we don't use the word torture. The word torture he puts, you know, he says, is not used anywhere in our directives. He says that. And Bush said that after 9-11, after all the Ghraib stuff came out. We don't torture. Right? Of course they have other euphemisms, enhanced interrogation techniques, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But Matthew says something I think a lot more penetrating. He says, a lot of you, and he mentions even like the French Communist Party, who wanted to maintain control of Algeria, he said, A lot of you want the French, the French to remain in Algeria. He's like, If you want that, he's like, This isn't a resort. If you want the French to maintain control of Algeria, don't complain about the methods and means we do to accomplish that. Right? Like, you can't have it both ways. You cannot be liberal and have this kind of ethical frame. And still want French Algeria. Right? And I talk about what that means in a kind of post-9-11 context, right? Like what are our the lives here predicated upon? We can get up in arms about individual acts of torture, etc., y- X, Y, and Z. But you know, everyone here uses oil to move around in their cars. At least in LA we do. Um, but all of our products and things that we consume and buy are predicated upon a, a kind of extractive, economically dispossessing, exploitative apparatus that they call capitalism, right? And so as a result of that, we can't complain about the means and methods. If you want this, if you want this lifestyle here in America, Matthew is saying, if you want this, then you can't have it both ways. Don't complain about how we accomplish it for you. Don't talk about corruption. Don't talk, right? and I know it's a crude way of framing it, but I think that's, a, that's what Matthew is kind of suggesting. But the film is embraced because of its seemingly balanced portrayal, and in fact, the way in which Morcone uses the music in a particular scene. So if you remember the scene of uh, when the OAS go to bomb the Casbah, and the, the Algerians are pulling the bodies out of uh, the, the rubble. The Morcone score is this really elegiac, beautiful score. That same music is used when the cafés are bombed, the simultaneous bombings of the cafés, and the French are being pulled out of the cafés, right? And so Morconi is creating a kind of equivalence between the two, right? And so I think for a lot of people, that objectivity of the film, that showing that violence is wrong on both sides, I think is part of its appeal. And I kind of critique that a little bit. What what I suggest is that we can't create an ethical equivalence between French violence and Algerian resistance to French colonialism. We can't do that. They're not equivalent kinds of violence. They're not both equally bad, right? Uh, Because the idea is, well, if the French stop uh, bombing and the Algerians stop bombing, then all will be good. Well, no, the French are still going to control the country. French is still the official language in Algiers. The Algerians couldn't get married under Algerian law. They didn't have any kind of subject to it. Right? So what, we're still left with another kind of violence, which is called colonialism, epistemic violence that folks have talked about. right? So the spectacular isn't necessarily the way to understand how violence works. And even if we focused on the spectacular, what I'm arguing right, is that we can't equate Algerian resistance with French use of violence to maintain their control. To me, those are not ethically congruent or parallel we have to understand them as disproportionate, right? And that there is more of an ethical value to Algerian resistance than French use of violence to try and maintain their control, right? So I think part of the, the, the video was about trying to get at some of those questions, right? And that we didn't want to have people lost in the spectacular in some ways. We wanted to be kind of really sober about how we thought about we, how we used violence and the way in which the video was displaying the conditions under which these characters were were living, you know? I hope that makes sense, you know? Uh, Yes.
2: Um, A couple of things, first of all, I had an occasion to uh, have a conversation with, Ricky Leacock who's a famous documentary filmmaker Mm -hmm. taught here Mm -hmm. for many years, and I asked him about, we got talking briefly about the film, I wish now I would had a chance to have a longer conversation with him, he didn't like the film, he told me, because he thought it emotionally manipulative, I think, More or less, I think what he said. Now, I disagree with him. Right. Um, It's very powerful emotionally. Right. Um, But it may have something to do with the fact that Ricky had been, was a kind of um, disenchanted former communist, Marxist. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe that was part of where he was coming from. I Mm -hmm. don't know. But I just thought I'd mention that. Sure. I think I'd also like to mention that I was at an event at Tufts once with the then head of what had been the U.S. Army School of the Americas. Right. Um, the School of Torture, as right. it's been called in Latin America, School of Assassins, and, and School of Assassins. Right. Right. And at a dinner, I made a point of sitting next to the guy because I wanted to sort of <laughs> suss him out a little. And then we walked to the a ways after a tour of a bus or something, and he talked about how they used the Battle of Chile right. at their school right. in, a, in a very similar way, right. sort of like examining insurgency and teaching counterinsurgency. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, interesting you know, mm-hmm. analogy. Right. Um, are you familiar with Ekbal Ahmad? Yes. And you've read his piece about this? Algeria, yeah. 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 So, Ekbal, who taught at Hampshire College right. for 12, 14 years, right. close friend of Noam Chomsky, Howard Zinn, people like that, right. prominent um, in the anti war movement, has this beautiful piece that you can find online right. about this. Right. Worked as a consultant on the film. Right. And a couple of things he, he points out in that piece that originally the soundtrack was going to be Beethoven right. for when the Europeans are killed right. and Algerian dirge music for right. when the De- Algerians are killed right. a former leader of the revolution who was involved in making the film right. objected mm-hmm. and said even in death you're going to separate us. Right. And so he changed right. Right. to Algerian dirge music right. for both. Right. He also points out um, that the, the crucial error Of declaring a general strike, right? Exposing people in the film depicts this Mm -hmm. to the repressive apparatus of the um, the French uh, military, Um, and how what a. So there's there's a lot of interesting material, but I won't go into all that. But may I read just a couple of sentences from the end of his piece?
1: Do we have time? Sure. Um, Okay.
2: Because to me, in in so. One of the the character in the film uh-huh. who is not played by one of the survivors because he was dead, right. who in the film argues against the general strike, is actually the only person, one of the key leaders who was actually killed. Right, Ben Amidi. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so he's talking about how he went and interviewed Mathieu, right. the Mathieu character, who's actually Tranquier mm-hmm. and so. So, years later, doing research for the Battle of Algiers, I interviewed Roger Trinquier, yeah. who is still alive, by the way, but that was years ago, some years ago. And one of the, the last questions I asked him was, what happened to Ben Mehidi? Mm-hmm. And uh, they thought that he had been tortured. Mm-hmm. Um, he disappeared, and they, they believed that he had been tortured. And he answered, talking and looking just the way Mathieu did, that tall, lean killer figure, but very sharp and intelligent. Quote, I know that all of you think we tortured him to death, but we did not. I said, What happened? He said, We shot him, but we gave him a guard of honor before we shot him. And I asked, Why did you do that? Parce que Monsieur Benmidi était un chef, because M- M- Monsieur ben was a leader, and then he talked about ben Mihidi for almost an hour. He said, I didn't want to shoot him. I had never met anyone like that. I would have liked to see him as le président de la France. So once I was ordered to shoot him, I gave him a guard of honor right. first. Right, right. Yeah. I just think that's amazing. Yeah, yeah.
1: No, I mean, I think there's a scene in the film where the, the press confront Matthew because ben Amidi somehow mysteriously hung himself in his jail cell. And they ask him, how is that possible? And he just basically ducks the question and says, I honored him, he was a true leader, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, So, yeah, absolutely, I
2: mean, that's. So, so Eqbal
1: was. Yeah, is a serious, yeah, yeah. amazing intellectual. Like, not forgotten, but not as, he, he needs much more uh, attention in terms of like the contributions he's yeah. made to kind of the last fifty years in the U.S. for yeah. sure, yeah. Um, Your question.
2: I'm just curious. You, you described at the beginning the film as uh, the greatest political film of all time. Right.
1: Other it yes. That.
2: Um Curious what you think some of
1: the Uh I mean, you know, it's uh, there's, there, real quickly like. Um, when you say political film, you know, to me, all film is inherently political. I mean, it's a term that gets used as a category, right? So all films are inherently political, right? Uh, but if you're going to take that category, I mean, um, uh, Battle of Chile, um, um, uh, Spook Who Sat By The Door was a film in the United States that got pulled by the FBI after three weeks. Um, uh, Ivan Dixon, Costa Gavres, right? Z is a great film. Um, Uh, More contemporary is an incredible Mexican film that came out in 2006 called El Violín, the Violin. Um, But so, you know, um, trying to think of some other ones. We were just talking about a great documentary today called Do Not Resist, right? Um, Which is which is out there. It's about the kind of the way in which the war on terror and local policing are kind of converging, and the kind of you know it uses Ferguson and the protests there as a way to kind of illuminate this this kind of development. Right. I think I think the, I think the Godfather 1 and 2 are great political films. They're not necessarily understood in that way, but it's a kind of seminal text in kind of the emergence and formation of kind of white supremacy. Like the move from white ethnic to white. Um and Godfather 2 where Don, Michael Corleone, you know, is in Cuba cutting up the cake that's shaped like Cuba, right? And they're kicked out on the eve of the revolution. So it's about kind of whiteness and the get, the, the the line between um like quote unquote legitimate and quote unquote illegitimate uh, uh, um, activity or politics, right? And so I think The Godfather becomes, it's not really understood or talked about in these ways, but I think it's a great text on, as, as good as any Western is on the construction of whiteness as a kind of organizing logic. Um, so those are just some of them that I, I you know, uh, Lizzie, Lizzie Bourne, Born in Flames is a great kind of like feminist manifesto that came out of early 80s New York. Um, off the top of my head if something comes up in the middle of another question I'll blurt it out but yeah are there any other questions, comments, thoughts, yes um, Thanks for a great talk uh, I wanted to ask if you could talk a little bit more about the, the ghostliness issue Right. Right. brought up right. And, um, whether you're building on Avery
2: Gordon's work mm-hmm. um, and I, I just think such, it's really evocative to think about ghostliness mm-hmm. as opposed to circulation mm-hmm. and Right. And to think about um, when, when you, I, it was useful for me to think about in relation to this film that's produced by and directed by Asiya Mudawe. Right. On, on surveillance. Yes. Yeah, the feeling of being watched. Right. Which is so um, right. fascinating to think about right. in the current conjuncture.
1: Right. But in relation to the ghostliness mm-hmm. of the Battle of, of Algeria. Yeah, absolutely. Like in this haunting way, yeah. not just in the circulatory way. Right, right, um, right.
2: So, I, I don't know, can you talk a
1: little bit more about how you weave that concept into the work that you're doing? Yeah, so, so the, and I think I mentioned that at the beginning, like, there's a way in which I track the factness, the circulation of its, the places it showed, right? But I think there's a whole other kind of afterlife and ghostliness to the film, even in the places where it showed. Like what, it, what did it mean in, for the people who saw it in Mexico in the 1960s? You know I was just in Havana a month ago and I was talking to an elder there and he talked about remembering the film when it was screened there and all of his comrades who saw the film and what it meant for them, right? And so th- the way in which the archive doesn't contain that, it's, it, in some ways it, it, the, it, it resists that kind of archival practice, right? And so. Um, so that's, that's one example, right? That kind of ghostliness. But I think uh, there's also a way in which like uh, the current news cycle, right? Produces a kind of um, analog for thinking about the film, right? In terms of like that ghostly presence. To me, when I see the current news cycle, I'm seeing the battle of Algiers. You know, I'm witnessing, the, when I see Abu Ghraib photos, How can I not think about the Battle of Algiers with the torture scenes? When I think about what Leila Ahmed has called the discourse on the veil, how can I not think about the scene where the women are taking it off, cutting their hair, looking French, appealing to the modern, and then subverting that whole aesthetic by planting bombs, right? How can I not think about the Battle of Algiers when you hear the contemporary language around anti-terrorism and and the way in which that racial logic has been used. How, do I, how can I not think about that press conference when Ben Amides asked if he's a coward for planting bombs in cafes, and he says, well, we'd much prefer to have your tanks and planes. We'll trade those any day, right? How can I, so, so for me, like, that, the, the ghostliness gets, if, for lack of a better word, get, can get traced in a range of different ways, and I'm trying to do that um, like, as I mentioned at the beginning of the talk, like if I were to rewrite the book, right? Because this, this, I mentioned stuff like this in the book. There is a, there, I, I mentioned archive and ghostliness and haunting. But I think there's another frame that I'm working with now where if I were to rewrite the book, and I'm thinking about another way in which I could do that. Um, but also, I think through cultural production, right? I'm, I'm trying to think about how I could capture the ghostliness of the film through film, through video work as well. Um, so I don't know if that, you know, I would love to talk more, you know, for sure. Any other questions, comments, thoughts?
3: Uh, sure. Yeah, I don't really have a question. I just um, heard the feeling of being watched being mentioned. Right. And I just wanted to say um it's going to be screened in Boston um near Emerson at the Paramount Theater on um, I Can't wait to see it. I've been wanting to. Okay. That's at
1: 7. That's a, um, yeah. I've heard amazing things about yeah. it.
3: Yeah. And, and just quickly, it's a it's a film about um uh, surveillance of um a predominantly Arab Muslim community. Um American. Chicago. In the '90s. In the '90s, but then the filmmaker connects it to right. surveillance uh, post right. So, right. Um, yeah.
1: Right. It's based on FOIA request. From FOIA request. And there's another. There's another great documentary. I don't know if people have seen. It. It's it's called Terror, but with the T in parentheses. Mm-hmm. So it's error, but it's ter- you know, and it's about surveillance and it's a really interesting film about the the perspective of the filmmaker and their their positionality, right? and it's about an informant who's asked to go in to these Muslims. Anyway, I don't want to give it away, but if you get a chance to watch terror with the T, the parentheses around the T, I would highly recommend it. Um, so, yeah. Just one other brief thing sure.
2: that Aqbal says at the very beginning of his piece, that the revolutionary violence, as he calls it, mm-hmm. didn't really intensify until after the bombing that the movie opens with, mm-hmm. where 157 Algerians were, were killed by the French. right? And it was only after right. the violence, that violence, that right. the, the revolutionary violence intensified. So that's sort of in response to some of the, some of what you were saying about, you know, in, about the, you know, and
1: right. the role of violence. Right, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we don't, I mean, again, we, we have to broaden and deepen our understanding of what is violence, right? Um, and, and And there's a whole history of, of that third world moment that I trace, and, and the, the, there was a massacre in Satif in Algeria, for those of you who know, right after World War II ended, I see on the same day that the VJ parades were going on in the kind of Western capitals, um, there was a big protest in Algiers because of, long story, um, do I have a few minutes, a couple of minutes? For those of you who know, I mean, we're taught about World War II, the, the great fight against evil, master race philosophy, the Nazis, all that, right? A um, couple things about that, what we're not taught is like when Britain and France and the United States won the war, well, actually the, the, the colonial subjects of Britain and France and a lot of black soldiers here and Latino, they were, but for the British and the French, that was a big part of their army. They asked their, co- their colonial subjects to fight for them against Hitler. And Amos Cesar, who was Frantz Fanon's kind of mentor, writes in a classic book, Discourse on Colonialism, he's like, You Europeans are hypocrites, you know, each one, the French and the British, you have a Hitler inside you. You know, you're only mad at Hitler because he's doing to you what you've been doing to us, right? And so the idea was that even though Hitler was defeated, master race philosophy wasn't. Ask any black soldier who came back to America and had to come to legal segregation and where lynching was a national sport, right? Um, So master race philosophy wasn't defeated, and, and for the French and the British, they made promises to their colonial subjects. If you fight for us, we'll grant you concessions for freedom movements, ability to assemble, publish papers, blah, establish political parties, all these kinds of things. Well, they did the same thing, the French did the same thing to the Algerians, and so symbolically, the Algerians on that first day uh, uh, were VJ Day parades and the ticker tape, and you know, the, the, the guy kisses his girlfriend, that iconic whatever imagery that we're always taught to look at and think about, the Algerians were in Satif marching saying, all right, you promised us our freedom. We're here to ask for it. And we fought for you. We sacrificed. You got free from Hitler. Give us our freedom. And the French came in and gunned them down. And over a week period, estimates run that about 20,000 Algerians were massacred. Right? And Satif became a kind of flashpoint for the third world, a kind of wake-up call as it kind of reverberated that the promises made by the European powers about World War II were not going to be kept right and so the French so then that becomes the birth of the modern liberation struggle in Algeria and a few years later the FLN emerge as the primary organ for that so absolutely like the that history, I think, is really important to understand, that continuity between World War II and the kind of anti-colonial struggles. But it kind of sets the stage for us to think about, again, because we've in some ways been told, we've, been, we've normalized the question of how violence gets understood. And we, underst- we, we think about state-sanctioned violence and state violence as something that just happens um, and not the kind of multiple ways in which it actually impacts parts of the world and even here. So, uh, but I think the film becomes one way to kind of hopefully uh, probe that. So thank you all, I won't, I won't talk anymore. All right, thank you guys, all right.